Hi, this is John Byrne with Poets and Quants. We're here with a special guest on our podcast. His name is Paul Ollinger. He was one of the early employees at Facebook, a graduate of the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. He came out with an MBA, and you won't believe what he's been doing of late. He has been doing the comedy thing. Paul has uh, headlined at a number of our own events, and in fact, he will be showing up again at our pre-MBA networking festival in New York City on May 9th and 10th. But the big news is that he has a gig at Caroline's on March 13th in New York, where he will be the headline comedian. Welcome, Paul. Thank you, John. It's good to be here. Do you really need an MBA to become a comedian? It's kind of like, do you need an <laughs> MBA to become an entrepreneur? It's absolutely required. Uh, the, the United States Association of Comedians has just released its newest guidelines requiring at least two years post-grad work. And does that guarantee a six-figure salary off the bat? Abs absolutely, with full health benefits that will make your wife happy uh, without fail. And let's not forget the sign-on bonus, right? The bonus, yeah. There's a $25,000 signing bonus plus forgiveness of 100% of student debt when you sign on uh, as a comedian. So, Paul, tell a story about how you became a comedian, because I think it's really an interesting story. I blame the Tuck School for my passion for comedy. I went there to make more money, John, and damn it, if the first semester of school, I'm hosting a talent show, and I told jokes in front of a crowd for the first time and had such a great time, I thought, hey, maybe I should do this for a living with no real thought as to the economic realities behind paying back my student loans and then actually making it as a comedian. <laughs> were you dissuaded by classmates or friends or were you no, married they at were, the time? They were part of the problem, my classmates. They were far too encouraging. And they, they, they let me live under the delusion that when you can make your classmates laugh, you can make anybody laugh. And that's, that's uh, uh, not the reality of doing comedy. I was not married at the time. I didn't get married until 11 years ago. I, I graduated from Tuck in 97 and got married in 2007. I'm just checking my math, making sure that's right. Yes, 2007. So I had a decade uh, post-graduation to, uh, to work out both paying off those loans and finding the right woman to marry. And how does she feel about this? Well, John, having had the good fortune of starting at Facebook relatively early, I've done a pretty good job of taking away any practical excuses for not being able to do stand-up comedy. So, <laughs> I mean, I got really lucky and I joined one of the, you know, one of the most um, significant companies of the, the past few generations and, and I, I won the corporate lottery and now I'm doing that thing that I always said I'd do if I actually won, a, you know, won the lottery. And so here I am. Now, uh, preparing for a gig at Caroline's, I can't even imagine how much work that takes in terms of writing a script and rehearsing it over and over and, and getting it refined. Give us a little sense of the kind of preparation you have to do to, to do a headline show at Caroline's. Well, headlining means you've got at least 45 minutes of material. And so there's three spots in the traditional headlining show. There's the host, there's the feature comedian that does maybe 25 to 30 minutes. And then there's the headliner who does anywhere from 45 to, and you know, as long as they want, if they're a big, if they're a big star, it's not that it takes so much preparation in the, in the, in the near term. It's that it's taken years of trial and failure 
and just repetition to get to the point where I have 45 minutes of material that, that earned its way onto that stage. It's the 10,000 hour rule that, you know, when you're first starting out after you, after you make all your tuck classmates laugh, you think, oh, well, I'm pretty good at this. And then you go out into the real world and you realize that this is a craft that takes a decade to get decent at. And, um, I was sitting in a green room many years ago. I did comedy for us for two years in between my gigs at Yahoo and Facebook. And I remember sitting in the green room with the late Ralphie May. And he said, oh, don't worry. In about eight years, you'll start to get the hang of it. And I was like, eight years? I'm giving up like a real job to do this. I don't have eight years to get competent. But that's about what it takes. So that's you, 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 you start and you do it and you don't quit if, if you want to um, – if you want to make it to the point where you can, we can headline decent clubs. And now I should remind our listeners that you were uh, generous enough to do a bunch of video bits for us, which are on the site. Uh, really some fun stuff like why you should go and get an MBA, which is kind of based off uh, a book that you did where you leveraged your business school experience in the early part of your career to write a quite a funny book. Uh, and there's and there are bits on uh, the MBA versus the law degree and why the MBA really kills it, among other things. So I kind of know you as, the, to me, and you're going to take this the wrong way probably, but I know you as the <laughs> business school comedian, which of course right. is not what you want to be. But, it's but not you, a huge. It's not a huge market to occupy. I mean, especially when the business schools themselves don't want to hire you because you told the truth about their programs in your book. <laughs> That's really true. Um, HBS didn't love the chart called Famous MBA Criminals. They weren't just, you know, begging me to come to campus to, to, to speak. <laughs> I, I bet. And I, and I don't think... Jeff Skilling's going to hire you for his uh, coming out party. (laughs) 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 Anyway, so I know that you smartly leveraged your experience to tell a lot of really cool and funny stories and jokes. But then, of course, that's only a small part of what you do. So do you define yourself as a comedian? Like what kind of shtick do you typically do in a club? I do define myself. I, I describe myself as a comedian and author and and a new podcaster, which we'll talk about before we're done here today. But the material I talk about is I do talk a little bit about business. I've got some material. My point of view on the the, the latest data privacy scandals is that we say we care about data, but our actions tell another story. I talk a lot about being a dad and a lot about being a husband. I talk about what it was like to grow up middle class, one of six kids in a big Catholic family and where money was always tight. And during that time, I was I always fetishized money and figured if I made more, I'd, I wouldn't have to stress about it. And then I actually did make money by working at great companies like Yahoo and Facebook. And a lot of the lessons I learned ran counter to my assumptions. So there's humor kinda, wherever there's... Yeah, it's, it's kind of like what uh, advice is is usually given to novelists, incidentally, write about what you know, write about yourself. Mm-hmm. And, and to mm-hmm. many, in many cases, uh, the, some of the greatest comedians basically mine their own lives for the best material. That's all you can own. The, the, I mean, the, you know, Jerry Seinfeld is, is an amazing observational comedian who can do things very originally around what appears to be, you know, our mundane world. But that's a really special skill. I spend a lot of time in comedy clubs, hundreds of shows per year, 
So I see maybe thousands of performances per year. And you start to see the same people talking about the same stuff. And if you want to stand out from this undifferentiated mass of, of other pretty talented people, you've got to tell stories that only you can tell. And, and the stories that I can tell have to do with the experience that I've had in life. And, and, and if it, that, it, that's all you can own because everybody else has got some joke about the internet and Tom shoes and, you know, the, the president, et cetera. So if you want to stand, you got, if you want to stand out, you got to come up with something different. Which leads me to your uh, new weekly podcast called crazy money, which is all about trying to increase the conversation around the, the, what role money plays in our lives. What came to you there? I mean, what, what was it that made money so important to you and a key part of your routine? Well, it started with the experience that I had when I when I re retired, quote unquote, at age forty two. I I I I'm, I I quit Facebook without really thinking about what I was giving up, and I'm not just talking about the meaningful amount of of money that I left on the table when I walked away from a pretty senior sales role there. I mean, the experience of being a part of a of a really extraordinary company of working with some of the most talented people I had ever met, of having an identity of being a part of a really, really great team, of getting the satisfaction from work that, you know, feels like stress when you're doing the job and, you know, working 70 hours a week and flying all over the place. But when you leave that all behind, you realize that work gives you a sense of purpose, a sense of belonging. And it really, hopefully someday you can get to self-actualization at the top of Maslow's hierarchy. But it's much more than just the food and shelter it provides via that two week paycheck, every two week paycheck, you know? And so That's really true. when I, when I walked away from Facebook, I was like, why am I lonely? And one of the answers to that question was because you're, you're by yourself all day in the big house you bought. Cause you thought that was going to make you feel good about yourself too. So I started to realize that a, a lot of the assumptions I had about money were, were not only inaccurate, but they were, they were pretty misleading. And so I wanted to dive in and talk to people about their experience. And so far, I've talked to some really interesting people. I talked to Dr. Drew Pinsky, the, the famous broadcaster and, and physician. I talked to a 28-year-old hectomillionaire CEO co-founder of a company called Indonero, who talked about what it's like to make friendships and to date when you're worth $100 million. I talked to, <laughs> talked to a guy that lost a multi-million dollar Wall Street trading job to cocaine addiction and how his life is probably better than it's ever been because of that experience, because he's really found more meaning in, in a life outside of Wall Street. So, and these are just the first few episodes. I've got a rock star interview with a rock star coming up, talking about what it was like to lose a bunch of money early in his career and, and what he, what he likes about being a rock star at 53 years old, as opposed to what was important about it when he was 30. So it's about careers and values and, and, and how we use money to make ourselves happier or to lead ourselves astray. Now, just from the stories you told, Paul, it makes me think that you're mostly telling stories about how money corrupts us or how money takes over from what may be the, the, the true value of a, of a well-lived life might be. Am I right? Well, I think it's certainly, I don't believe that money is evil. I believe that money is just a tool that, but that we get it wrong quite often. You know, I, I, I make jokes about the, the fact that I always wanted to be rich because 
I thought that luxuries and status and a big house and impressing people with all all the things that you have were the things that made you happy. But at least from a financial standpoint, the best I've ever felt is the day I paid off my student loans. That's the most <laughs> affluent. Look, I drive a Tesla now, but the the car that the car purchase that meant the most to me was a 1994 Saturn SL2, which was a piece of garbage. I and had yet, one of those. <laughs> it was a reliable piece of garbage that yeah. started every time I turned the key. Yes, cars used to have keys and the air conditioning worked all the time. It was a cathartic purchase. But beyond that, additional, you know, horsepower and amenities, they don't lead to significantly greater happiness. And and so these are some of the things that I've learned. It's, the best part of having of, of being of having money isn't the luxuries; it's being not broke. That's what it's about. Yeah, and you know, I think I mean it's said, and I think it's true that this generation of MBAs are far more inclined to seek careers of purpose with with values that are that have some sort of social mission. And if they can't do that right out of school, they take what they can to pay down their debt with the uh, ultimate goal of seeking a job like that or creating a company that does more than just make money. Well, I think that's great. I, and I think there's I think there's a there's a lot to be respected in this whole new fire movement, the financial independence retire early, especially on the FI part, because when you are financially independent and you don't have debts hanging over your head, you can make the decision to take the kind of job that you want. But I do think that retiring early, the 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 fetishizing of retiring early is misguided that that you should it and, and maybe it's it's that they're not describing it properly. I think it should be about working the way you want to, doing the things that bring you satisfaction, but that doesn't necessarily translate into a, a catchy acronym like FIRE. <laughs> All right, Paul Ellinger, good luck with your upcoming performance at Caroline's March 13th in New York City. Uh, if you want to download and uh, subscribe to the weekly podcast called Crazy Money, you can do so on iTunes or Spotify. And if you come to our pre-MBA networking festival where newly admitted MBAs from the top schools meet the major companies that hire MBAs, you'll be able to see Paul at our kickoff evening event, uh, which always occurs at NYU Stern, and that will be in May, on May 9th. So, Paul, thanks very much and good luck to you. Thank you, John. Thank you for all the support Poets and Quants has given me over the years. I really appreciate it. You deserve it. <laughs> all right. This is John Byrne with Poets and Quants. Thanks for listening. 